Pray with me. Father in heaven, we now desire to bless your name by listening, by listening to your word. Father, it's amazing to think that the God who has created everything is written to us. That we might hear, that we might listen, that we might receive grace. So we pray that your word would have its perfect work in us, that it would work thoroughly, go deep, expose unbelief, bring faith, that we may walk with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to First Peter in chapter 2. I want to read verses 18 uh, through 25. Verses 18 through 25. <clears throat> First Peter chapter 2. Verse 18. Hear the word of God. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed." For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I have been, as I mentioned earlier, singularly captivated by this phrase, and we're to live mindful of God. I think I must live like that. I think I must live mindful of God with my mind upon God. If you have a new American, a new international version, I've been reading out of the English Standard Version, a newer one, which I rather like, but there are many out there that are obviously good and trustworthy. Many of you have an NIV, a new international version. There you would have to live conscious of God, same idea, aware of God, mindful of Him, that we're to understand life by understanding God, by being mindful of Him. We're not to interpret Him through our circumstances, but understand the circumstances of life Mindful of God, who He is, what He's doing, what His will is. If you have the New American Standard Bible, the expression is translated like this, that we're to live for the sake of conscience, a little different word, for the sake of conscience toward God. Again, trying to translate the same idea, because someone who is mindful of God, someone who is conscious of God, would be one who understands the will of God, understands that God is here, and who He is, and His holiness, and that He's the Lord to be followed, and therefore you live in such a way that your conscience, that is in the place where you determine what is good, right, and wrong, and understand rightness and wrongness and good and evil, that you would live so that your conscience would be clear before Him. Live for the sake of conscience, your conscience toward God. We're to be a people to live mindful of God. Now, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, I read a quote for you out of a book called God in the Wasteland. I'm going to read it again because I like it and because it fits again. Um, 
You may think it's the only paragraph I've read out of this book. I've read another one. But it's a book called God in the Wasteland by David Wells, who was one of my professors in seminary. And his point... I'm reading this again because I forgot to read it in one of the services a month ago. So if you were in the service, I didn't read it. It's for the first time. If you were in the service, I did read it. It's for the second time. But his point being that in our culture, God is weightless, that we're not mindful of Him, that He carries little weight. Listen, he says this. He said, It's one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that He's ethereal, but rather that He's become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He has lost His saliency for human life. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider Him less interesting than television. His commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence. His judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news. And his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That is weightlessness. It's a condition we've assigned to him after having nudged him out out to the periphery of our secularized life. His truth is no longer welcome in our public discourse. The engine of modernity rumbles on... And he is but a speck in its path. We're not to be like that. For the believer in Christ, for the Christian, for the one whom God has filled with his life, he shouldn't be weightless. We should live mindful, conscious of him. Our conscience should be gripped by who he is. And that should determine how we think, what we say, and how we live. It's interesting that in Hebrew the word for glory is the word for weight. That is something that's very heavy. The heavier it is, the bigger it is, the more glorious it is. Because when it gets to be such a size, it simply takes your breath away. And you go, glory. That is a glorious sight. Well, that's the word glory. God is glorious. He's supremely glorious. He's so huge. If we could use that kind of language as Clay did while he was praying this morning so huge that he's glorious. He's to be glorious to us. He isn't to be weightless. We're to live our lives mindful of him. Now Peter applies this sense of mindfulness, consciousness of God in a very, very difficult circumstance. Because he applies it in the circumstance where he's writing to Christians who are servants, we might say servants slash slaves. A very, very difficult situation you might suspect, but it's made even worse because these are servants slash slaves who are living under masters who are unjust. And they're servants, slaves, who can't get out of this situation. I mean, politically, economically, socially, they're stuck. They don't have a category in their brain for getting out, and nobody has a category in their brain for getting them out unless someone purchases their freedom. And so here they are, stuck in that circumstance. And Peter's writing to them saying, I want you to live mindful of God. I want you to be in this situation mindful of God. I want you to be in this situation aware, conscious of God. He's the one to dictate how you understand the situation and how you act and respond in the midst of it. And this is compelling to me because I think Peter's applying this idea of living mindful of God in what must be one of the worst possible scenarios. And there's a sense of we can understand how they're to live mindful of God. And if they can really live mindful of God in such a situation, then surely we can. It may someday get this bad for us. But surely we can live mindful of God if they can live mindful of God. And so it's 
to us to understand how that is. And he says to them, if you're living mindful of God as, as a servant, in verse 18 he says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. He's saying, listen, if you're in this situation, I want you to be submissive to your masters. I want you to respect them. Even the ones that treat you unjustly. Verse 19, For this is a gracious thing, a good thing, a sign of grace. This is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So I want you to endure this circumstance, this situation patiently. Because that's a good thing. Living mindful of God. Verse 20. For what credit is it if, when you sin, you're beaten for it, you endure? That is, that's no big deal. You should be punished in some way when you sin against your master. So if he does, if he's angry with you because you've sinned, well, but then he goes on to say, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He's saying, listen, when you suffer, experience sorrows while suffering unjustly, you're suffering for doing good. He says, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verse 21, he says that we're to Follow the example of Jesus. That example in verse 22, he says of Jesus when he was suffering unjustly. He committed no sin. So he's saying to these slaves, you can't sin in the midst of this circumstance. Even though things are really bad, and even though you're suffering unjustly, you can't sin and be unjust also. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. That is, he didn't lie. He didn't become a deceiver so he could get out of the situation. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. He said, listen, you can't retaliate in the midst of the situation. You can't repay the evil that you're receiving with evil. You have to repay the evil that you're receiving with good. Endure it patiently. Be respectful. Submit in this circumstance. And then he says of Jesus that he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, saying, listen, I want you in the midst of this circumstance, in the midst of this situation, to continue to trust God. Now I'd be expecting, I suppose, Peter to put his arm around these folks and say, I know it's really hard. And I know you get angry and that's all right. And I know you have bitter feelings about your master who's treating you unjust, and that's all right. I know it's just human. That's just the way it is. I know that's how you're going to feel. But he doesn't say that at all. He says, I want you to endure this. I want you to be patient in this. I don't want you to revile back. I don't want you to threaten. I want you to trust God. And that's a good thing. It's an evidence of the grace of God in your life. Now, you may wonder, why did Peter say this? Why didn't he just condemn slavery altogether? There have been some who have used passages like this over history to say that slavery is a good thing, that it's a godly thing, even if it's just part of the natural order. And of course, those people have twisted this passage and other passages like it. Fortunately, there have been great Christian statesmen throughout the centuries who have understood the word of God better than that and used the scripture as a foundation to end slavery. But you have to understand that Peter isn't about making a social comment at the moment. He's out to help a group of Christians who find themselves at this moment, that moment in time, stuck in their social, economic, political situation with no way out. And so he's simply telling them, this is how, I want you, this is how you can live in this situation, this is how you can be a Christian in this situation, because there isn't any changing this necessarily, this is how you are to live. Now it is true that the servants, the slaves, and the days of Peter were different than we know from our context of the American travesty, 
these are not quite servants, not quite slaves. They're slaves in the sense that they're owned, they're property. If a slave owner in the days of Peter was, were to, was to list his assets on his financial statements, if he had any property, he would list that. If he had slaves, he would list that as an asset, as a piece of property, as a non-person. They were certainly non-persons. You wouldn't think to affirm your slave. You wouldn't think to say, good job, any more than you would think to say that to your computer. Although I'm sure slaves were called some of the things computers have been called. But they were non-persons in that context. And they were stuck in their situation. There was no way out unless they or someone else purchased their freedom. They were slaves considered to be slaves. But on the other hand, they weren't quite slaves as we understand it because generally they were paid. You know, and They made an income. These were slaves. These were, these were people who were in the professions. Managers and doctors and teachers and tutors and artisans and musicians could all be in this bundle of class of slavery owned by others to do these particular tasks generally paid uh, to do them. And they could be paid sufficiently to ultimately buy their own freedom, if that is what they could do and desire. So slaves, but not quite. We need to put that in context. It was part of the whole social scene. But Peter's point, it appears, is not to comment so much about the injustice of slavery, though I suspect he could if he had opportunity. But he's talking to particular Christians, saying, this is how you must live. That's how... This institution of slavery, that institution of slavery, is considered in Scripture. For instance, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians in chapter 7 and verse 21, he says, Were you a slave when called? That is, when you became a Christian, what was your particular social situation? Your economic situation, your political situation? Was it being a slave? So, were you a slave when you were called? Paul says, do not be concerned about that. But you'd say, but Paul, I'm a slave. I, I should be concerned about that. And he says, that's not what I mean. He says, don't be concerned about being a slave if you're worried about whether or not you can function well as a Christian. Because when you were called to be a Christian, you were a slave. You can still be a Christian as a slave. You can still live out your Christian life as a slave. So it isn't that the two are mutually exclusive. You can actually be a Christian slave. It may not be the best thing in the world. It may not be the most just thing in the world. But... But you can be that if that's your concern. Don't be concerned about that. You can still carry out your Christianity. He says, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. That is, if you can get out of this, cool. If you can pay your way out, if somebody can pay your way out, if you have an opportunity to be freed from this, that's fine. You don't need to be stuck if you don't need to be stuck. But if you are stuck in it, then don't worry. You can still follow Christ. That's the most important thing anyway. Your Christianity can't be stripped from you. And here's why. Verse 22, he says, For he who called you in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man in the Lord. He said, listen, if God has called you and you were a political slave, social slave, economic slave, you're free. Oh, you're still a slave, but but, but, but you're freed from your sin. So you're free to be able to follow Christ even though you're a Slave. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Don't become slaves of men. You say, but I am a slave of men. But Paul would say, no, you're not getting it. Christ bought you. He bought your soul. He bought you. 
He freed you from sin, so now you can live and follow Christ even though you're a human slave. And thus in one sense, internally, spiritually, in terms of their own hearts and lives, they were free to follow Christ. That being most important. So Peter's writing to a group of people who are suffering, writing to a group of people who are slaves, writing to a group of people who are experiencing injustice. And he's telling them that still in the midst of that they're not to sin, in the midst of that they're not to revile, in the midst of that they're not to threaten, in the midst of that they're still to respect their masters. In the midst of that, they're still to endure patiently because that's where they are. They can't get out. And you may say, how can that be applicable to us? I mean, we're not slaves here, any of us, in this same kind of way, but yet we do experience various kinds of of injustice, I suppose. There's the sort of minor that can get more significant kinds of injustice, I suppose, just because we can be taken for granted as these people have been taken for granted. We can, we can experience a situation where we're not receiving uh, our just affirmation. This can happen in a work situation where you can actually do a really good job but be working for a boss who really isn't very affirming. It really doesn't say good job. It really doesn't notice the good that you've done. And after a while you become taken for granted and you experience that sense of lack of worth in that situation. And Peter would say, well, if you can get out of it, that's fine. But if you're in it, respect this unjust employer. We can see it happening in families. There are children who grow up in family situations where they're never affirmed. Or at least they never get that sense that they have the approval, the affirmation of their parents. It may even be that they feel like they, they, they try to be as good a kid as they can possibly be, and yet they're still always being criticized, and parents are always still being critical towards them, and they're not really ever being affirmed, and they never sense that. And if that's really true, now let me just talk to the kids for a minute. It may not be exactly how it appears to you. It may come a day when you have to reason through this and say, oh yeah, they really do like me. I'm just only noticing it when they tell me to clean up my room. But it may be that you're really right. It may be that you are in a family that isn't very affirming. It may be that you are in a family that is critical. It may be that you are a kid in a family where your parents really don't seem to appreciate the fact that you're around. In fact, you may feel like you're a nuisance. You may be stuck in that situation. And it may be unjust. Maybe that you're in a marriage where you feel taken for granted, where it appears as if your spouse really doesn't appreciate you. One of the things that is always helpful, really, for Karen and me when we do our premarital class every year, we have come anywhere from 12 to maybe 18 couples, and what is nice for us to observe is how polite they are to each other. Uh, people engaged, very often, one will go get a cookie out of the kitchen and bring it back for the other, and they'll even say, thank you, and we'll go, we need to remember to do that. Because after 20 years of no thank yous, you could probably feel pretty abused. That's an overstatement, obviously. But in a marriage, you can often feel taken for granted. And after so many years of no thank yous for laundry and driving the kids and making a living and doing whatever it is that you've done out of love, really, for the other and out of sacrifice for the other, can feel unjust. And, but you're there, married, and you don't have a free ticket out. And what do you do? 
And it may be that in the context of your life with friendships, you feel that way with roommates, with, with people that you're in relationship with, that they really don't appreciate you, but yet you're in this relationship. There's certain expectations that really need to be met, and, and you really do feel an obligation even to be around this other person. And it, it could even get worse. You could be in a situation where you're good that you do, at least the good that you attempt, whether it's speaking the truth in love or maybe it's confiding in another, may all become twisted and turned and, and eventually turn against you in a negative way. It may be that you're in a situation that as a believer in Christ, you're living uh, out your in- with integrity and honesty and you're around people that don't appreciate integrity and honesty and they actually turn that against you. And you lose your job because you won't play the game the way that it's really played. Injustice. And you may feel, at least at the moment, stuck. You may not have any other choices for jobs. You may really need to stay there in order to earn a living. And the question is, how do we stay there and how do we work? How do we make this work? How do you live as a Christian in that kind of a situation? Peter's writing to people like that. But he's writing, again, to people in the worst case scenario. So that if if this holds for them, it most certainly holds for us in most of the situations that we would find ourselves and he says respect them submit to them now as we've said before that isn't an absolute because if anyone asks us commands us to do that which is against the will of God the heart of God the law of God we ought not do it even in these days if one of the masters would have asked one of the Christians to steal I think that Christian would have been right to say no would have probably been beaten but the right to say no. Or, if a slave was asked to participate in sexual immorality, I think it would be right for that Christian to say no. They might be beaten. They might be raped. But still to say no, because that wouldn't be pleasing to God. But yet short of that, which would be displeasing to God in that kind of way, They were to respect their masters even though they were being ignored, even though they were suffering this injustice. Because even as Peter writes to say you're suffering sorrows while doing good, that word for sorrows um, adds a whole nuance to this. It isn't just physical pain that they're feeling. They're feeling emotional, mental anguish as one feels when injustice is towards you. It's more than just a beating. It's, 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 It's... it's the injustice of it all, not being able to, to clear that injustice. There's something in us that says that's wrong. He says that's sorrow, that grief, that pain inner that you're feeling. He said, still endure it. Still endure it, living, of course, as he says, mindful of God. Now what does this mean for them to live mindful of God in this particular context? Notice what he says in verse 21. He says, for to this you have been called. See, living mindful of God means that when we enter a circumstance like they were entering, when we enter a circumstance of injustice, to understand that God was an absence when that injustice took place. That that God wasn't on vacation, or God wasn't ignoring you, or God wasn't walking away from you, or God didn't turn His back on you. But you were actually called to this particular circumstance. That's where you are. And that's where God has called you. Now it may be that in our context that there are some remedies for that. It may be that we can appeal to to a grievance procedure in our work situation. And that's okay to do. That's respectful to do. If, If that's the way it's handled, great. File a grievance. It may be 
that in the context in which you're, you're in, if injustice comes towards you, that you may be able to appeal to civil authorities. And, and, and that could be respectful too. Because God has ordained civil authorities to protect us and to help us. It may be that you have uh, avenues to sit down with people who have committed injustice. And, and that's good too. That can be respectful. and You can sit down and talk those things, talk those things out. But he says, understand, whatever you do, whatever comes your way, you've been called to this. It isn't by accident. It isn't arbitrary. It just didn't sort of show up in your life. You've been called to this. And you could say, well, would God really call me? Would it really be his will for me to suffer injustice? First Peter chapter 3, verse 17, Peter writes later to them saying this, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Saying, yes, it may well be his will for you to suffer for doing good. Chapter 4, verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Yes. God could lead that to your life, your particular situation. When we live mindful of God in any circumstances, even those where injustice has been committed against us, understand we've been called to this. And what is the this to which we've been called? The this to which we've been called is to endure it. To live respectfully. To not commit sin. To not revile back. To not retaliate. But to trust God. That's what we've been called to. He says, for this you've been called. So we're mindful of that. We're also mindful of, of Christ. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. You know, a number of years ago, there was a, a book that was republished and repopularized called In His Steps by Charles Sheldon. Uh, it was a book, I think, written in the 19th century. Um, and, and, of course, we all now have six copies of it because that's what we do when a book comes out. We buy a bunch of copies, put it on the shelf, read one chapter and say, I'll get back to that. But, I wonder, do we know where that phrase, In His Steps, it's from in the scripture. It's here. We walk in the steps of Jesus as we follow in his suffering. Was there anybody who experienced more injustice than Jesus? It didn't just begin when Jesus was on trial and being mocked and all of that. It wasn't just when he was crucified on the cross. A great act of injustice, no doubt. But it happened every day in the context of his life. Because you see, every time Jesus walked down the street and people didn't fall and worship him, that was unjust. Because he was the Lord of all. See, it's unjust for us not to love God. It's a, it's a lack of justice. Now, if you don't love me, I'm sure I've given you some reason not to. It's not nice, but it's certainly not unjust necessarily for you not to love me. But, but, but not to love Christ is an act of injustice because he's perfectly deserving of our love. Not to follow him is unjust because he's perfectly deserving of us following him. So if we don't follow him, that's a, that's a lack of justice. That's injustice towards him. He was perfectly innocent. And yet the scriptures say that we're to follow in his steps as he endured this injustice. As he suffered. The scripture says of our Lord Jesus. That he learned obedience. Through the things that he suffered. 
It isn't that he didn't know about obedience. It isn't that he couldn't have taken a, a multiple choice test on obedience and passed it. It wasn't that he had been disobedient, so now he needed to learn his lesson. But the point is, he experienced real obedience through the things which he suffered. When suffering comes, we learn obedience. And you see, we must understand as we live mindful of God, that we're living mindful of the example of Christ. This is what happened to him. We must understand that when we live mindful of God, that God has a purpose for which we're suffering. You remember back from 1 Peter in chapter 1, verse 6, Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold than perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying, listen, you rejoice in the knowledge of your salvation, but right now there's a necessity. And that necessity is that you're suffering grief in all kinds of trials. But there's a purpose to that. And so when we suffer in various trials, when we suffer even in justice, we must live mindful of God that He wasn't absent when this, when this injustice happened, that He's called us to endure through it, and that He has a great purpose in it. And that purpose is to prove our faith genuine, to show it's really faith. And at the end of it, you see, we'll be more faithful than we were. Our faith will have increased. He says, that's the purpose for all of this, so that you may rejoice and have real joy. James chapter 1, James speaks to the same kind of thing. James chapter 1 verse 2, he writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He's saying, listen, God has a purpose. When the injustice happened, live mindful of Him. Understand this wasn't an accident. Understand you've been called to this. And understand God has a purpose in it. And that purpose is to test your faith and prove it genuine. And that will bring you joy. He's to mature you and to grow you up so that you'll be perfect and complete and lack nothing. Isn't it interesting that very often when God takes stuff away from us, we find afterwards we lack nothing. We're always so afraid of losing stuff because then we'll lack. But the truth of the matter is when we go through difficulties and stuff is burned off of us, we find we don't lack. We have more. Because what he's adding to, is not our accumulation of stuff, but he's adding to our faith in the midst of all that. He has a great purpose. Romans 8, 28. Ken preached on this last week, so I merely need to touch it. Romans 8, 28 and 29. Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. He's saying God is at work all the time. We must live mindful of this. God is at work all the time in everything that happens for our good. That He's at work for our good. That's this purpose. We're called according to His purpose. And of course we know that good. Verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That is, that the good that God is bringing, the purpose for which He's allowed this injustice to happen in our lives, the purpose for which that has come, to test our faith, that we might learn obedience through this suffering. 
to grow us up so that we would lack nothing when it comes to faith. So that we'd be just like Jesus. We'd be conformed to His image. That's the purpose. That's what's happening. Don't be discouraged. Don't be bitter. Don't be angry. Don't kick against the goads as Paul once did. Endure it in faith. Live mindful of what God is doing. And then he goes on concerning Jesus. <clears throat> he says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. You can say, how could he do that? How could he do that, given all that Jesus went through? Picture Jesus, the, the Lord of glory, being harassed by these soldiers who have beaten him and put a robe on him and a crown of thorns on him and, and say mocking things about him. Put yourself in such a situation where people are belittling you. And, and people, if I could just say it this way, People who are, who are below you belittling you. That's an easy thing to say about Jesus because that includes everybody. But, but you get my point. People who don't know as much about your subject as you do belittling you. People who aren't as strong as you are belittling you about your strength. And there you are. And Jesus endured it. How could he do that? Was he not interested in justice at all? Was he just... Was he just completely oblivious to the fact that injustice was taking place and justice meant nothing to him? And the answer, of course, is no. Notice, but, it says about Jesus, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Literally, this could be translated very simply like this. He committed or gave over to him who judges justly. The word himself, uh, the translation is just threw that in there because it seems to make sense. But what I think is limiting. He, include, he included everything. He entrusted everything to his father. He entrusted the injustice. He entrusted the people doing it. He entrusted the circumstance. He entrusted his own life. He entrusted his own future. He entrusted everything at that moment in time when the injustice was taking place to his father because he knew that his father judged justly so he didn't have to take vengeance. He was free. He was free to pray the most amazing prayer. Father, forgive them. Joseph Tane, Romanian pastor, now pastors a very large church in Romania, was a pastor during the communist uh, regime there and suffered greatly early on for the faith. Uh, he gave a lecture, a series of lectures at our seminary, it's a seminary I attended, and the lectures weren't very well attended, but I think it was a marketing problem because he titled the lectures A Theology of Martyrdom. And then told all of us there was still a contract out on his life, making us wonder if how, what the application was going to be of that particular series. But he said once when he was arrested, he was beaten. And it just so happened he was beaten on Good Friday. And he said to those who beat him afterwards as he was laying there bloody, he said, thank you so much for choosing this day to beat me. And they said, why? So it's Good Friday. This is the day we remember the suffering of our Lord. 
And they said, what was going through your mind when we beat you? And he said, oh, what was going through my mind was this, Father, forgive them. They let him go because they knew they had no hold on him. Because he entrusted. Stuck in the situation where he was. He couldn't quite get out of there. Couldn't do anything about it. He couldn't file a grievance. He couldn't say, could we talk about this? And there he was. He faced it mindful of God. He faced it knowing that he was called to that. He faced it, faced it knowing that God had purpose in that. To conform him to the image of this dear Savior whom he loved. He could think of nothing better than to be like Jesus. To learn obedience the way Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. So he knew that God had purpose. And thus he entrusted himself. And had freedom from bitterness. It had freedom from anger. It had freedom from vengeance. It had freedom from retaliation. It had freedom to love them, amazingly so. And to not revile. And to not hate. But to pray for them. Because we need to remember, we need to live mindful of God and know that He is a rewarder of those who truly seek Him. For instance, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed. It's just not a throwaway word. That means this is commendable. This is a gracious thing. This is, this is a, a good thing. This is something that is evidence of grace in you. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. How can you do that? Well, if you're mindful of God, because he says, for your reward is great in heaven. God sees. Just like I read you at the offering time, when we give in secret. Be mindful of God. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Ephesians in chapter 6 as Paul writes to, again, this same class of people, people who are servants, slaves, he says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord, not to man. And this is the mindful of God part. Knowing that whatever anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a slave or free. Saying, oh, God sees. God will bless. Or Colossians, in chapter 3, again, to slaves. Verse 22, slaves obey in everything. Those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Here's the mindful of God part. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Trust Him. Christianity is not an add-on religion. Christianity is a radical thing. That's why when Jesus was speaking to a group of people, he says, if you want to come after me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. 
Jesus had a way of what we call preaching down a crowd. He says, oh, you're attracted to me? And follow me. Walk in my steps. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. That sounds like something's got to die. Yes. You. So that the new you can follow after Christ. Not after, but after Christ. That's why I would say to a group of people, if you want to come after me, if you want to follow me, he says, no one is worthy to follow me unless you hate your father and your mother, your children, your wife, your husband, even your own life. Meaning, compared to following me, it's nothing should get in the way. He says, now remember, don't be like the builder who was going to build a large tower and then when he got halfway through the project, realized he didn't have enough to finish it. That's foolish. Don't, don't be like the general who was going to battle and had a thousand men and then realized when he got into the battle site that he was facing a hundred thousand. That's foolish. If you want to come after me, understand what you're getting into. It isn't that you just have a little gap in your life and you need Jesus to fill it. It isn't that everything was going okay in your life and now you want to add on Jesus and that'll just make it complete. No, it's that he says, follow me. Even to the point where he says, if you're suffering injustice and there's no way out, trust me. I'll be your advocate. I'll be the one who fights for you. I'll be the one who blesses you. I'll be the one who rewards you. And if there's justice to be brought, I'll bring it. We must live mindful of God. I'm no prophet, but I have a suspicion that we're going to have to apply this more in the next 20 years than we've had to apply it in the last 20 years. I have a sense that we're going to need to learn if we're going to follow after Christ how it is to suffer injustice and endure it by trusting the one who judges justly, by being mindful of his purpose, by being mindful of his reward, by being mindful of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me and for us in these days. Though I dare say there's not a slave among us as those to whom Peter wrote. But I dare say there are those feeling stuck in a situation of injustice. It would be my heart's desire, Father, that you would free us from all injustice. And I know a day will come when you'll do that. But if there's no godly way out to be free of it I pray for me and for us that we would endure it patiently with respect Father we would live mindful of your calling even in difficult situations mindful of your purpose mindful of your presence mindful of your reward mindful that you are trustworthy mindful that Christ has freed us from sin, that we really might walk with you.
this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that there are elders available to pray. Please take advantage of that. Remind you too that the response to the benediction is Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. Now, when you say that He's Lord, it means that you'll follow in His steps. And when you say hallelujah, you're saying, I like that. That's good. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to Him, who was able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine through His power that is at work within us to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. Father in heaven.